learn after rebuilding four times? Uh, three things that I have done differently and that I've learned after rebuilding ABS four times. Uh, the very first thing I, uh, that I learned was that uh, slow and steady does win the race. I know in this world where it's a microwave type of mindset and everybody is talking about growing wealth and get to wealth fast and build wealth fast, but Proverbs 13, 11 says wealth gained hastily, you lose it just as fast, but wealth gathered little by little grows over time. And I can honestly say that in all of the times I have to restart this company from mistakes, mishaps, or whatever, they all had something to do with me trying to move faster um, than what we could actually handle um, at the time. So I would say the biggest lesson I learned was to slow down and to actually think things all the way through and wait until they actually manifest before I try to move on or I try to, you know, here we get cash. The second thing that I learned is understanding the importance of a doubling down uh, on your vision. And what I mean by doubling down on a vision, I mean that um, never compromise the overall goal of why you got into business um, for quick hustles and quick wins, which goes back to lesson number one, which was don't be so quick to just try to get big and make quick money because it'll take you off focus on what the overall mission of that business was supposed to be. And the third thing I learned was to stay in my lane. You know, um, knowing what you're supposed to do, knowing what you're gifted at, and then positioning yourself and putting yourself in the best position for you to be able to grow, expand, develop, and, and, and take yourself, your business, your community, your mob to the next level. It's understanding that if you stay in your lane and you move in your lane, there will be some opportunities that you do miss out on, but you will never miss out on the totality of growth that you can uh, receive if you just stay you know, in your lane. So the first one is don't move too fast. The second thing is double down on your vision. The third thing is, is stay in your lane. Those are the three things that I learned in rebuilding this thing all over again that I would say that every person needs. All right, how did you first learn about growing your money through insurance reserves? And also, what do you see as the most beneficial thing from having an insurance bank? How did I learn, when did I first learn about growing, uh, using, uh, growing money with insurance reserves? And um, what was the second question? Uh, what's the most beneficial thing in having? And what's the most beneficial thing about having insurance reserve? I first learned about growing money uh, using insurance reserves by the founder of uh, the concept Infinite Banking, Nelson Nash. And learning from Nelson Nash, I mean, he was an older guy. Uh, he, he, he did now, arrest his soul. Uh, but uh, this is the first time something finally made sense to me. Uh, I understood the relationship with the banks and the consumers and how it doesn't fit us best. I understood that. But I couldn't get a grasp on where, where else do I store my money that gives me guarantees. You know, they talked about the market. They talked about real estate. I just couldn't get there yet because, you know, my mentor first told me that don't even look at the stock market. Don't even look at real estate until you made $100,000 and you have $100,000 saved. That's when you can begin to make different moves because your ideology on money, your thoughts on money will be totally different than if you didn't have it. 
So listen to Nelson Nash and seeing how he broke down insurance reserves and banking with insurance policies, it intrigued me, but the information that he had in the book wasn't enough. So I just began to go into discovery mode and find out what the banks were doing, find out why we didn't know, find out who else was doing it. And it just led me into this full discovery mode where we end up changing our entire financial and insurance practice from being a basic insurance practice to a practice that actually specializes in private banking using insurance reserves. Why I love using insurance reserves so much is because it does a couple of things. They give my family a guaranteed death benefit that gives us millions of dollars. The second thing is that the money that goes inside the policy grows tax deferred. You can access it tax free and you can be able to use the money by leveraging your account, but use the insurance company's money while your money is still making money the entire time. And so when I'm looking at this paradigm, the best place to put my money where I get the best out of the best bang for my buck, I couldn't find another place that offered me all of those things. Guaranteed growth of my money, 4 to 8% four to every year. Guaranteed death benefit because we all are guaranteed to die. I can access my money tax-free and it grows tax-deferred where as long as I can just keep borrowing against my account, I never have to pay taxes on utilizing my own money. When I thought about that concept, I looked at every other construct out there. That was the only place that I actually felt where I put my money. I felt like a partner with the financial institution that was housing my money. So that's why I love insurance reserves. Okay, and then for someone who that might seem new to, why would they want to borrow? Uh, the question is, why should I borrow for myself? Uh, so, so that's a great question. Why should you borrow from yourself? But that, that also tells me when somebody asks that question, that lets me know that we don't really understand the construct of the policy. You're not borrowing from yourself, actually. Uh, when it comes to borrowing money from your policy, you're, you're not touching your money at all. You're borrowing against your policy. So you're using your money as collateral and leveraging the insurance company's money. So you're actually getting their money while your money stays in your reserve and is still making money for you. And that's the piece that most people don't understand and that they don't get. And then the second thing is we have to look at the construct of what runs this entire corporation called America. It's the banking institutions, Federal Reserve. And when you think about the function of it, we all borrow from ourselves every single day. When you take money out your savings account to go make a purchase for groceries and then you refill it with cash the next day. Anytime that you uh, take money out your, your checkings account to go buy shoes for your family, didn't you borrow from yourself? And you, 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 you make the purchase and then you wait till you get paid to replenish your account only to do the same thing over again. But the problem that we continue to face is that at what point does borrowing from ourselves actually pay us? When can we actually get on the other side of it? And that's what that policy does. When I'm able to keep money in my account and then I borrow against my policy, my money's still making four to eight, four to eight percent. I'm using the insurance company's money to go pay for liabilities that now become assets to this estate or this financial reserve that I have. I pay myself back and I have more money in it than I actually took out because of that four to eight percent interest that's growing on top of it. We have to understand how money works to, to actually get a premise of it. See, the dollars that we have in our accounts, the dollars that we have um, that we have as far as cash, those are debt 
utilities or debt bills or debt tenders. So you have debt that loses value and you're purchasing liabilities that lose value. That's a double negative that never turns positive. But when you turn that debt and you, you turn it into asset cash by putting it inside of an insurance reserve, then you leverage that and then you get the insurance company's money. Your money is still growing. Now your cash is an asset. Assets grow in value. You're using the insurance company's money. You go make purchases on liabilities. You turn that around. And so that's the only time that you can actually get control over the borrowing that we do every single day. We all are borrowing and replenishing. Borrowing and replenishing. The moment we realize that will be the moment that we'll see that we've been hustling backwards because all of us don't run our financial houses like banks. That's why I say everybody can be a bank. That's why I tell people to really get into our information because the moment you begin to understand the psychology that you too can become a bank will be the moment that your life has changed forever. So how, okay, so I'm gonna see it. This is Amir's question. How do you differentiate social currency and financial currency becoming, now becoming an influencer? Okay, I got you, I got you. Oh, that's a great question, Amir. Okay, all right. So the question is, how do I differentiate social currency from actual physical financial currency? There's a big difference. <laughs> one pays bills and one makes you look good. But I, I, but I believe there has to be a balance in between the two. Um, somebody can have financial currency, but don't have social currency. The social currency is the, is the relationships that are built over time where the trust, people trust you. So it's easier to get financial currency if you have the trust of the people. The financial currency side is you can have become financially well and be just fine, but it's harder for you to get the trust of the people because they don't know you. And so when you merge the two, getting that social currency, which is influence, being somebody that's able to influence people to do something, be considered, be, being considered as somebody who is a, um, who's on the forefront of an industry or, or that gives massive value where people begin to um, appreciate you on a deeper level and you balance that with the ability to offer products and services that can back up your social currency, therefore infusing the two, making it so much easier to accomplish and build wealth. Because today, I can lose all the money that we have, but because I built social currency and I have the proper products and skill sets to be able to amass money again, I can leverage my social currency to get financial currency again. However, if I didn't have social currency, no reputation, no relationships, and I lost my business, it will be harder for me to build again because I don't have the ability to have this social currency where I can leverage the relationships and the trust from the people who are in this sphere, who believe in me or who follow me or who are you know, avid fans of me or who are in the circle that I teach on a regular basis. So I think it's the balance of the two which keeps you wealthy and keeps you successful. I think that you can be too much, have financial currency, no social relationships or a good reputation. You'll make quick money, but it's hard to stand. And I think that you can have a lot of social currency and no money because you don't have a product or service to offer. So it's gonna be harder for you to stay consistent them as somebody you know wanting to achieve financial independence so I think it's the it's the living of the both of both of them and the living of the two which allows for you to still stay in people's mind and still be able to take care of your family's bills and your responsibilities at the same time so I think it's both and not either or
That was pretty good. Do you prefer... I love not thinking and just answering questions, bro. Do you prefer silk drawers or cotton? Silk drawers or cotton? Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Um, do I prefer silk drawers or cotton? It depends on if I'm at home. I don't know the answer. Do I prefer silk drawers or cotton? Nah, but for real, now here's a serious question. All right. Back door your social currency and financial currency. If you had 90 days and $100 with no social currency, how would you rebuild ABS? If I had $100 and I had 90 days. And you, you are who you are, but you can't use your credentials. You can't say I'm Jay Perry. And I am who I am, but I can't use my credentials. How would I rebuild ABS? And I can't use any of my relationships I currently have. And I can't have the same phone. Can't have nothing. I'm in a new city, new place. The very first thing I would do to build ABS, I'll understand, I'll need to know that um, in order to build ABS, you have to have something to stand on. So I would take that $100 and I would, do I have a car? <laughs> I will fill up my tank. <laughs> I will fill up my tank and I will go find a company that will allow for me to sell for them. I would then sell their products, use that commission, save a little bit of that commission to be able to stay. I would probably spend 20% of whatever I make to, for where I stay. So if that means I gotta stay in my car for a little bit, if that means I gotta you know, how, jump couches for a little bit so I can be able to keep 80% of my reserve so I can have something to build on. I would continue to sell. The only thing I would think about is how can I provide a service to this person and sell for them. Once I built up a reputation of selling, the very first thing, because I still have my skill sets, very first thing I would do, I would save my money and then I would find another customer or client I can sell for, replace myself with a salesperson for that person, take a little bit of that commission, continue to give them, give them my portfolio of prospective clients and go sell from somebody else, take that cash flow, now I have enough money to build on, which gives me enough time to be able to see what exactly I wanna do. I wouldn't go work for somebody as an employee, but I will contract so that I have the opportunity to replace myself and still be able to get commission for my entity for replacing myself with somebody valuable. And then I would just go do the same thing over and over again, finding boutique companies that aren't this big machine, but somebody I can build a relationship with. And before you know, I didn't build sales reps for maybe three to five different companies, generating possibly a close to 20,000 a month in a right industry that's able, so I can get volume and the proper commission. And then I would take that cash and then I will be able to then go create a course that teaches people how to sell and how to scale a sales team by creating this sales company and I would take that course money and then I would be able to push that, give it to my sales people for them to be able to push and then I would be able to grow ABS all over again, just like that. Hey, listen, family, at the ABS firm, we teach families all across the country how to build their own bank. Yes, I said it, how to build their own bank. If you're looking to try to get out of debt, stop borrowing money from everyone else's bank without building your own family banking system, you need to get in our private banking blueprint where we literally show you exactly what we did to not only build our own private banking system for our company, but what I did to build me and my wife's and my family's private banking system so that you can be able to not only guarantee wealth for your family, 
but you can now learn how to be your own bank. How cool would it be to learn not only how to be your own bank, but to actually become your own bank? So go to privatebankandblueprint.com, privatebankandblueprint.com, so that you can learn 25 hours coursework, videos, questions, everything that you need. And you will also be able to talk to one of our ABS advisors to be able to set you up your own family bank. Family, this is true. It is possible. You just have to go see it for yourself. So privatebankingblueprint.com. Don't wait. <laughs> the easiest way, to, easiest way to rebuild a company is through sales. And, if, and, I, and I feel sorry for CEOs that don't know how to sell. Because if you do not know how to sell, that means you do not know how to go find meat and you depend too much on other people. The value base of every successful entrepreneur is learning how to hunt for yourself. Because if you can hunt, they can take technology away, they can take your money away, your team can stab you in the back, you can lose all your funds tomorrow. But on that next day, you can pick yourself up and you can position yourself as an authority so that you can be able to get back what you lost. you got to learn the art of selling and you'll be able to get back to where you need to be. Uh, I was just asking, what are some of the things you do to keep your wife happy? Some of the things I do to keep my wife happy, I don't know because <laughs> I struggle with that often um, because it's, it's hard to balance the dream that God gave you and balance, uh, you know, the wife that you feel like God made for you because each of the marriage is a business. Your business is a business and learning how to maneuver and move between the two. It's a hard balance. And, and, and I can't honestly bold face sit here and do a video and say that I got it figured out. There are good days. But usually the good days is when I'm paying more attention to the marriage business and I'm losing sight on the ABS business, which is why I'm trying to, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too by developing leaders and partners with ABS so that I can be able to tend to my marriage business with a little bit more intention. But I think that everybody tries to find balance and you just need to try to find harmony. Some areas, sometimes you're going to be paying more attention to something in your life than the other. Somebody's always going to feel neglected. Some, nobody's always going to be happy. There will be peaks and valleys, and you have to be willing to be okay with the repercussions and the consequences that comes with you not tending to something in a certain way that you did previously before. So I truly believe that when it comes to making my wife happy, I try to be as intuitive as I can, but I don't always hit the mark every time. Um, and it's a sacrifice that I make in trying to balance both a business and a, and a marriage. That wasn't the answer you thought, right? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, you into my next question. So what I'm going to ask you now, are there three things that you do every day to balance your, like three things you do in your daily rituals that balance your two wives, ABS? Yes. Um, what are the three things I do every day to balance my two wives, ABS and AJ? Again, I try to stay away from balance because that takes too much of, okay, I'm going to do two hours here, two hours here, one hour here, and then I'm off balance because I'm trying to focus on two hours here. I just, I just look at it all like, like harmony, like my world. You know, sometimes there's summer, 
Other times there's winter. Sometimes it's spring. Sometimes it's fall. So I look at these things as seasons and depending on the season will determine what I'm doing. ABS is a little bit slower or we got enough of a groove that doesn't need me more. The three things I do may be different. ABS needs a little bit more of my attention. My wife is occupied or, or her parents are in town or we just came back from a vacation. The three things I maybe you know, do is different. And I think that a lot of people give this false narrative of saying that there's three things that you do to keep your life together. But the truth is, there is no three things. <laughs> um, it's all dependent on winter or summer or spring. The three things you do in the winter may be to bring your bring your raincoat and um, I mean in, in, in your in your in your in your jacket and your umbrella because you don't know if it's gonna rain or be cold or be hot. The three things that you do in the fall may be you know uh, to uh, to wear shorts or wear a jacket because you don't know if it's gonna be hot as hell or cold as night. The think things that you do in the summertime may be different than the three things you do in the wintertime. So I just think that it's it's the three what you should focus on is figuring out what are your hot seasons for your business and what are your hot seasons for your relationship so that when you're in those seasons, you can spend as much time bathing in the sun so each one of them have enough to be able to carry them through when you're not paying attention to either or. So I can't say there's three things you do in each one of those things because it wouldn't be fair to how important both of these wives are to me, ABS and AJ, but I think that it just depends on what season I'm in. When it's cold as hell, you know, with AJ, I need to warm up. <laughs> I need to spend more time. When ABS is cold as hell, shit ain't right. I got to warm up ABS to make sure she knows I love her still. So it's a balance of those things. And I think that we should focus more on how to navigate through the seasons than we should focus on what are the three things I do every day, because those vary depending on the time. Lastly, bro, what is something that you would tell someone who has absolutely no financial discipline and impulsively buys all the time? Um, um, somebody I that I think that has uh, no financial discipline and impulsively buys all the time. The advice I would give them is to ask themselves, what insecurity are they trying to cover? Um, because typically there are endorphins that release in our body that when I buy, it makes me feel like I'm better than what I am. So when I buy myself clothes or I buy myself shoes or, or I buy myself these things and, and I say it's in the name of this person or I say it's for myself, it makes me feel like I'm where I want to be financially. I'm where I want to be in life. And, and so what happens is when you got a stressful life, when you buy yourself something, it relieves that stress for a small period of time. And your mind begins to believe that that's the release valve of all of your terrible things that are happening or things that aren't going your way in life. So you buy, 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 buy to replace the insecurities. But when that wears off and you just got all these things, you still got to deal with all those things that you got, that you tried to, um, that you, that you, fail to overcome yourself. So you got to ask yourself, why am I doing those things? What insecurities am I trying to feel? And how does it truly make me feel after that thing wears off? Because I feel like a lot of people use buying stuff like other people overcompensate smoking weed every day. 
It's the craziest thing to say when I smoke weed, I think better. No, that just means that you don't know how to tap into your godhood without being under the influence. And because you finally let go of all of the stress and all of the um, all of the um, um, uh, uh, um, hard criticism you give yourself when you're high, you don't know how to let go of those things when you're sober, because when you're sober, you actually get so much more creativity because you're not under the influence. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to people purchasing. I overcame my addiction buying stuff when I realized that as a, when, I was, when I was in high school or when I was a child, I was the kid everybody made fun of because I had to buy my clothes from Dollar General and I couldn't afford it. So I was trying to overcompensate and I was buying stuff I couldn't afford so that I can prove to everybody like, look who made it now. I'm good, I don't need your help no more. We straight, look at what I got. And then what happened was I start putting myself in a worse position and I started hating myself even more because now I got to keep up with the persona that I didn't want in the first place. So when I dealt with those insecurities, I called them out. After you deal with the insecurities, you have to replace your insecurities with a focus. So I replaced my insecurity with a focus and said, what am I going to work toward that's going to be a reward for me in the same way that buying was was. So I began to save for a reason. And that saving started off when I save this much, I'm going to then buy myself something I'm going to remember forever. So if it was a Benz or if it was paying off my mom's or my parents mortgage or if it was um, a Rolex, I wanted the, what I purchased to be more memorable than it was just a short hit. And when we're able to recognize those different things, you'll realize that when you have that temperament and you can save, you actually get better things with better quality in life. And you actually begin to realize that the stuff that you're purchasing don't really mean nothing to you in the first place. Okay. Now this is lastly. What's three saving tips that you would give that same person? Three saving tips I would give that same person would be one, um, first of all, figure out why you're saving. Why you're saving. What are you saving for? Typically, people have a hard time saving when they don't know what they're saving for. Nobody wants to save for a rainy day. Like, no matter what people say, save for a rainy day. For what? <laughs> for what? <laughs> I'm going to deal with the rain when it comes. <laughs> I like rain. So you got to figure out what you're saving for. And what I would suggest, whatever you want in life, so if I want it, say I want it, say I want it, uh, say I want it, somebody give me a, a nice brand shoes. Yeah, yeah. so say, say I wanted Jordans, and I got a habit of buying Jordans. I would say, okay, I still want to buy nice shoes, but I'm, but I'm going to save my money and see what it feels like for me to buy a $1,000 pair of shoes versus a $125 pair of shoes. What happens is when you break that and you focus on a bigger purchase, when you get to that $1,000 pair of shoes, you don't even want to buy them. <laughs> so I would focus on why am I saving and then up the purse, figure out, okay, if I like going to the club, let me go to the club in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's a bigger purchase. You got to spend more time saving. Got to have a bigger focus. And, it, and what it does, it infuses inside of that second thing, time. And it builds patience for you to actually think and know what you want. After you fulfill that, do not let go of that urge. You have to reward yourself for breaking that curse of, of spending on dumb stuff.
So you got to go to San Paulo. You got to have an amazing time because it's going to trick the endorphins in your mind to say, I don't want no Jordans no more. I want to travel the world. I want to go to, matter of fact, I want to go to the club in Germany. And it forces you to continue to think bigger, which takes me to my third thing. After you get that itch out the way, and after you feel fulfilled that, you got to go back to the drawing board and say, what, what bigger thing do I want to save for that doesn't serve me, but it serves someone else? When you can figure out why you're saving, save for something bigger, and indulge in it. And after you indulge in those things, then say, I want to save for something bigger than myself. When you save for something bigger than yourself, you will begin to realize how small-minded we all are when it comes to getting the things that you want. And so those are the three strategies I would do because those other financial things, they don't work. If they did, more people would do it. When I was saving and I began to save and save all the money I had, I indulged in everything I wanted. Except I began to move the I began to move the finish line further. So when I purchased that thing I wanted, I said, okay, I want this bigger. Well, this bigger thing I want to purchase is uh, is a is a Rolex, let's say, thirteen thousand dollars. My first indulge was a thousand dollars. Well, I wanna I wanna purchase a Rolex at thirteen thousand dollars when I have uh, when I have a hundred thousand dollars saved. Or mine was when I make a million dollars cash. So, um, um, that I seen in my bank account, right? So now I changed the rules. I can get this when I accomplish that. Therefore saying I got more money in my savings account, but I had to trick my mind to say, I can get this, this, that wasn't 13. I can get this $18,000 watch when I have made a million dollars cash in my business. Does that make sense? So now I didn't trick my mind. My mind only cared about this. But I set a contingency plan that says I'm going to have more in my account, but this is going to be the reward for hitting that. Then you begin to start putting those contingencies. I can get this if I do that. It forces you to think bigger. It forces you to be bigger. So for me, I said I can't get a house or a home for my family until I'm able to pay for my parents' mortgage cash. But in order to pay for my parents' mortgage cash, I need to have a half a million dollars saved. You see that? So I, you begin to add more contingencies, like okay, half a million saved, can't get a home for my family like my wife wants until, uh, until I can purchase my parents' mortgage cash. Well, damn, there's a lot of contingencies here. So now I'm going through all these things trying to make sure I'm good and then when I hit one contingency, I'm saying, I can't do it because I ain't got that. So then I get that, I can't do it because I got to get that. Then you get that, then you purchase it. After you purchase it, you'll realize you exercise this thing called patience, but you created a reward system that can reward you for you being patient, and it still gives you a goal outside of what you're saving for that is bigger than what you're saving for, which keeps you in line for the long term. So listen, I'm Jake Taylor Jacobs, and you just got into the mindset of a millionaire. Peace. Look, I was raised different. I see the whole game different. Gotta go hard like LeBron in the paint with it. We don't just play different. Every day we think different. Wake up in the morning, talk to Christ. You know I pray different. Used to play.